Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. With us, as always, is Adam Tews, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, this time also suffering the bad weather with me in London, though. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, we will be completing our series on the economics of love. The specific topic will be the economics of divorce. So stick around for that. But first, we wanted to do something more from the news. And the data point there is 139 billion. That's 139 billion dollars, which is the amount of money that flowed last year, at least by the end of September, into ESG funds. These are investment funds that invest according to various environmental, social, and governance criteria, hence ESG. ESG standing for environmental, social, and governance. And it's a criteria. Now, these funds cater to investors who want to put their money towards issues that are important to them. In these areas, investments typically include climate change and carbon emissions, energy efficiency, gender and diversity. And also criteria like lower carbon emissions, for example. It's become a booming business in recent years around the world and a controversial one, at least in the United States. Across the U.S., Republican officials specifically have accused ESG investment funds of woke capitalism, in quotes there, in other words, of hurting businesses in favor of a political agenda. Just this past week, in fact, Republicans in Congress voted to block a labor department rule that would allow retirement plan managers to incorporate these ESG criteria into their investment decisions. So yeah, we thought we'd dig into the subject and try to pick it apart a bit. Adam, how exactly did this concept of ESG investing get its start? And why were so many financial actors seemingly so quick to endorse this idea? Yeah, it's a really big deal. I mean, globally right now, estimates vary as usual, but you know, we're talking about an industry of asset management uh, run according to ESG principles, perhaps in the order of $18 trillion. So that annual flow number that you started with strikes me as a little on the low side and um, you know, doesn't maybe do justice to the stock of assets. Uh, it's thought to be about one in three assets under management in the US are governed according to ESG principles. And at least until recently, the expectation that was that this was going to grow very dramatically over time. You know, people talk about uh, you know thirty trillion dollars plus under ESG principles um, by the late twenty twenties. Um, it's a model that, well, I think you could give it different historical origins. You know, there's, there's there's been a kind of ethical moral capitalism since the beginning of the system. I mean, famously, somebody like Max Weber would say that capitalism actually grew out of a sort of theological inspiration. And in the 19th century, you could think of firms like Cadbury's, the Quaker chocolate manufacturers who were big in anti-slavery activism. 
um, Johnson and Johnson, the U.S. firm, you know, issued what they called its company's credo in 1943 that recognised the company's activities touching employees, customers, communities, and so on. But I think the, the you know the woke badge that's been attached to ESG by the Republicans is quite telling in the sense that the modern you know, ESG model is really a product of the 1970s, which is which I think is also historically where you would see, you know, wokeism as a form of politics. Really, it is a, it, it, it's a child of the 70s in the sense that it's a convergence of it's post traditional radicalism, right? It's not it's not socialist politics. It's a kind of new alignment of civil rights orientated, human rights orientated, rights based thinking with a kind of elite with elite politics. And I think that's what, you know, really drives the, the Republicans in the US crazy. But I think really the, you know, the genuine start in the in the modern form of campaigning activists, world-changing sort of strategies is really the the Sullivan principles or over apartheid and investing in South Africa in the in in you know these were initiated in 1977. Then you see big American pension funds like TIAA in 78 issuing a statement on its business in South Africa and fully divesting by 1983. And the divestment movement of the 1980s, I think, is really the precursor of the modern ESG, the modern ESG line. You then see action against Procter and Gamble and Philip Morris, the cigarette company in the in the 1980s. And then a major mobilization of corporate interest also around the Exxon Valdez oil spillage in 1989. And that's really where I think the the modern model emerges. By the 1990s, there is really a sort of global corporate responsibility movement in full swing at the same time as there's also, of course, the global mobilization against globalization, the anti-globalization politics of the 1990s. And this sort of synthesizes then in the UN principles of 2006, which are really the principles which which uh, it's a UN report on principles of responsible investing from 2006, which actually coins the ESG slogan. And it's really from that moment onwards since 2006 that we have this badge, ESG, as a kind of common denominator for this kind of politics. I mean, what, what appeals to people about it, if you're wielding a lot of money, I think is, you know, two things. A, you do have a huge sense of responsibility if you're allocating tens, hundreds of billions of dollars. You'd have to be a kind of you know, a singularly diminished, I think, person not to not to worry about what you were doing with that money. But it also, I think, appeals to those folks' sense of power in the sense that they also imagine that not only do they have a responsibility to consider the implications, but also if they point their money in the right direction, you know, it could make a huge difference. Yeah, this entire style of investing is premised, as I guess you were just alluding to, on this idea that investors have control over the companies that they are investing in. And I wonder how that applies in the case of, say, climate polluters. I mean, do investors, through their mechanisms of acting as shareholders, really control uh, the fate of carbon emissions? I mean, do publicly traded companies even produce the majority of carbon emissions in the world? This is a key issue, and it also goes to the matter of history, because if you went back to the world economy as it was in the early 1990s, then for good reason, you know, climate activism would have centred on the Exxons, the BPs, the shells of this world. And they, of course, remain very significant polluters. And historically speaking, if you go, if you add up their emissions over time, since the 1960s, for instance, then they come out top of the pack. 
But if you actually look at the more recent trends in the global economy, and this is something you know that we harp on in this in this podcast, if you look at the shifting balance of power within the world economy since the 1980s, since the end of the Cold War and the advent of the latest phase of globalization, the thing we have to wrap our heads around that is is that in the top 10 polluters worldwide in the fossil fuel business, only two are privately owned, widely traded Western oil majors, Exxon and um, Shell. And they come respectively in num- place number five and then further down the list of the top 10. The top eight are government-owned, government-linked energy companies largely in the emerging market world. So at the very top is China's coal industry as a whole. Then next is Saudi Aramco. Then you've got Gazprom. Then Iran's national oil company. Then you've got Coal India. Then you have Pemex in Mexico. Then you have Russia's coal business. And then China's national petroleum company. And those between them account for something like 33% of global emissions since the 1980s. Because you're talking about the entire energy sector of you know, two of the most rapidly growing economies in the world, which are gigantic, like China and India, obviously, obviously huge. So this idea that by way of Western publicly traded capitalism, you can control the whole world economy, it's anachronistic. It's no longer the case. And that doesn't mean that it's not important to exercise pressure on them and they, they you know, they, they exercise an important influence. But but it's only very much a parcel solution, and there's no way around politics ultimately, because state-owned enterprises are key to this story now. They're key to the, especially to the future, and the energy transition that we need to need to make it we need to make in future. Even within the West, there is a, another sort of worry, which is that um, if ESG takes the form of divestment, so brand aware, major publicly traded companies trying to get clean. It's one thing if they shut activities down, which actually does result in a net reduction in you know pollution. But if what they do is actually divest themselves of the assets, sell them off, the question, of course, is who they sell them to. And often what they'll do is they'll sell them into non-publicly traded companies like you know basically private equity firms of various types who then will or privately owned energy companies, which will then run these assets. And of course, that doesn't do anything for global pollution. And in terms of corporate governance, it may actually reduce the capacity of, you know, environmental politics to reach those those assets because those companies will be much less responsive to pressure. And if things go wrong, they also don't have the deep pockets to pay a large scale compensation in the case of, say, offshore oil. You know, if we have a major disaster, it's clearly much better that it's a BP that's on the hook that can pay out billions in compensation, whereas a small, you know, small, dirty, um, cheap and dirty private oil company might just go bankrupt and, and roll away from the losses. So this idea that by way of the big corporates and cleaning them up, you can steer the whole thing towards, uh, you know, towards salvation, I think is is flawed at both ends. You know, it's flawed in the sense that they may not be actually calling the shots for a large part of global energy development. And secondly, if what they do is simply pass off those assets to private capitalists who are less amenable to public pressure, then then that may actually reduce the responsiveness of the system. Yeah, that gets me wondering if there's a more fundamental mismatch here even. I mean, if investors have to choose between profit and climate goals, won't they choose profit? I mean, won't they have to choose profit even in some basic kind of legal sense or business sense? I mean, isn't there just a motivation problem here from the perspective of the investors? There certainly is. And you see that, you know, as we've seen right in the last couple of years, every time the fossil fuel market 
revives, all of a sudden the you know the oil majors begin reconsidering their energy transition plans because there's just so much money to be made in oil and gas, and they feel they have an obligation. And you know, you've got a if you've got a player in the system like Exxon, for instance, which is doggedly defending its fossil fuel based you know energy model, then it's very difficult for its competitors under those kind of circumstances to to stay on their sort of ESG track. So those kind of things play out. There are two different ways, I think, of bridging this. The first is to claim, and this is an essential claim of the ESG industry and its success in recent years, is that being green is actually profitable. Um, in the end, there isn't a trade-off. I mean, one of the early reports of the 2000s on ESG investing literally had the title, Who Cares Wins, you know, as a riff on the SAS slogan, the British Special Forces slogan, Who Dares Wins, Who Cares Wins. Um, and that's part of the argument of the ESG, of the ESG, you know, lobby, the ESG campaign is that actually to posit a stark contrast between profit and sustainability is a false, is a false, uh, is a false contrast. And you can see over the very long run why that might be true, right? Because obviously business needs a stable environmental and social uh, framework within which to operate from the point of view of any given firm over a reasonable time horizon. I think that's in a sense you know they're trying to make things easier for themselves but the evidence the evidence does suggest that ESG funds don't do badly and it may have to do simply with the fact that you know if you're running a, a, f- a fund like that you just have to pay a lot of attention so it may just require you to be more you know focused but in any case that's one way of answering this and the the other is to face it head on and to say well you know who are investors what are investors and generally speaking what we're talking about is pots of money say from pension funds or insurance firms which are then passed on to fund managers. And so the investor here is the combination of the fund manager and the the owners, the ultimate owners of the pension pot. And it's perfectly legitimate for the pension fund, uh, you know, the Californian teachers pension fund or whatever, to specify that our members do not want profit to go ahead of environmental sustainability. We do not want to retire on the basis of you know, profits extracted from underpaid workers in Central America. Like that. And, and, and then you just pass that on as an instruction to the manager, and then there's really no conflict. So as we've mentioned, Republicans are making this a political issue in the United States. And that got me wondering whether finance as a whole is already a polarized industry. I mean, does it identify with one party in the United States more than another? And yeah, why, if that's the case, what accounts for its kind of political leanings? I think it's very complex because finance is a diversified industry sprawling across the country, both you know, small and large, with major centres, of course, in the coast in California and above all in New York, but all the way down the East Coast. Um, and taking lots of different shapes and sizes, like, you know, from very small, you know, um, family run financial advisory outfits or to to giant banks. I think at the level of corporate leadership, you see a kind of split consciousness in that they like tax cuts and deregulation, which is what the Republicans provide. And even if it's not in the form of legislation like tax cutting in gutting of regulatory authorities and whatever that the Trump administration most recently delivered. But on the other hand, if you're running a big globally orientated business in the United States, but you know, a firm, firm like JP Morgan, for instance, has a footprint around the world, culturally speaking, in terms of the kind of corporate culture that holds a complex organization like that together, you find yourself willy-nilly in the camp of the Democrats right now, so long as the Republicans are in kind of culture war. Trumpist clown show mode because you simply can't align a big business with that kind of politics. 
Um, and so there is a real tension there. And, you know, at the global level in fora like Davos or at COP27 or whatever, the leaders of major corporations around the world want to appear as though they are on the right side of history and they want to be able to sign up to these kind of programs. And we are now seeing actually major fund managers like BlackRock, for instance, announcing that if they find themselves in a clash with Texas, they, you know, they're warning their shareholders that they might well suffer losses either by complying with, you know, Texas's anti-ESG rules, which makes them vulnerable to attack, you know, globally for hypocrisy, or or conversely, and you know, if they stick with their ESG mandates, then they may suffer sanctions from the Republican side. Mine, meanwhile, I mean, if you go down into the rank and file of you know the giant American financial industry, of course, you'll find loads of folks working on Wall Street, commuting in from Long Island, for instance, where you grew up, you know, Cam, um, who are solidly Republican voting and are probably chuckling to themselves over the dilemmas that their corporate leadership find themselves in. Who you know like swanning around at Davos and places like that, looking good, and you know, they, they see this as sort of, you know, corporate corporations being hoist by their on their own petard, like their hypocrisy being exposed. And I have to say, I have a sort of sneaking sympathy for this because the ESG shtick is an interesting form of, you know, liberal politics that doesn't really dare to speak its name, right? What it does is to translate a set of what are, by any stretch of the imagination, political judgments on you know how you value community, the distribution of income, um, the priorities of ecological policy, it translates them into values, which it then attempts, as it were, to place outside the sphere of political debate, and then mandate, if you like, as a sort of consensus of values. And in a sense, what the Republicans are doing are just calling their bluff and saying, no, look, we see you coming. This is basically the Democratic Party's agenda cast as a value set, which we're supposed to subscribe to. And we just frankly don't. So if you want to have this you know, agenda, spell it out, be upfront um, and you know, pass legislation that requires it, for instance. But if you can't win that argument, then don't try and smuggle it in by way of you know, corporate agenda setting. And I think that's you know, it's it's a hard line to take, but in some senses, you know, even without, you know, even without, as it was sympathizing with it, you can see the logic at play here. This has been since the 1970s, I think, an attempt to found a set of essentially very value-laden assumptions. They're also, of course, empirically found that climate change is a real thing. And when you orientate yourself towards it, you are expressing a value, but you are also drawing on science. Climate denial is not really a viable position. But prioritizing, and Exxon has moved away from that after trying denial, it's now in a position of arguing about what you should prioritize. And that, the 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 in a sense, this is the flip side of what the conservatives themselves have been attempting to do by shifting, you know, the debate on abortion, for instance, um, progressively over time and campaigning the way they have through the institutions of the American state and government, such that now they have a majority on the Supreme Court, which allows them to, you know, uh, pass the pass, make the decisions and drive the decisions that they want to see. So I think that's the way we should see ESG. The Republicans are not wrong to call it out as part of you know, this struggle over the norms that govern society and the economy, which can be waged in the political sphere, certainly waged in the media space, but are also waged in corporate governance. And that's what we're seeing. And businesses are very uncomfortable with it. I've been talking recently to European firms, and they're frankly terrified because in Europe, it's non-controversial. And frankly, you can't not have ESG mandates. It's just not an option. But they also want to enter the American energy space. And there, it's just dramatically politicized. 
Gotcha. Finally, I did want to point out that at least in relative terms, ESG investing, or at least the money that's flowing into it, is on the decline, at least from its peaks in 2021. And that got me wondering, might we look back at this in some ways as a as a financial fad, you know, a kind of an expression of the kind of macroeconomic circumstances at the time of its birth when money was really cheap and inflation wasn't yet an issue and it was easy to sort of find profits across the board. And this is a, so I thought this was a really interesting idea. I mean, I think one would dispute, I think we should hold open the question of whether ESG is really declining. I think that's possibly a more American mm. perception. Uh, it's difficult to say. We, we sh- too early to say we should return to the issue in you know five years' time when ones and twos are celebrating its what, seventh mm-hmm. anniversary or whatever. Um, but um, but I like you. I love your point about the macroeconomics. I mean that you know you could say as it were fracking uh, and ESG were both you know products of the of the of the QE era of cheap money of low interest rates and people chasing for narratives that would you know sustain uh, profit and. Fracking was one of those narratives, famously didn't yield much profit for a long time, and ESG ESG was another. I mean, I think the more substantial point I would really want to make, especially in the present context, where literally day by day we now have, you know, these reports of VW, you know, earlier this week announcing that it was going to prioritize battery investment in the United States. That's an ESG investment, right? And 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 it's hugely attractive for them right now because of the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, if you actually put 300 billion plus dollars behind subsidies for green energy, then you're shifting the realities, right? Rather than ESG being the thing that drives the reality change, what you're doing is saying we are going to create facts on the ground, massive incentives. The Europeans have them too. They're whining a lot about Inflation Reduction Act. There's been quite a lot of incentives for green energy in Europe as well. But the more you do that, the more you legislate, in other words, and this is a classic case of going directly through the front door, through, you know, through the narrowest of windows as well, getting the Inflation Reduction Act, we spoke about it as this incredible, um, incredible tightrope warp of politics. Having done that, you've now got this pot of money. And then there's no argument about the economic rationality of investing in batteries in the United States right now. You, you know, you'd be kind of, you'd be ridiculous if you couldn't make money doing it because there's such great tax incentives. So, then all of a sudden, it's no longer a matter of ethics. It's just a matter of, well, are you in the battery business? If you're in the battery business, the US is a great place to invest, as VW is discovering. So I think that's a key. In a sense, ESG may be overtaken by you know, increasingly active and dramatically effective um, government policy um, and the snowballing of technology. For instance, you know, it's no longer an ethical choice to invest in solar panels if you're in the business of electricity generation, they are by far and away the cheapest mechanism for generating intermittent, admittedly, but if you find the right places in the world, it's not very intermittent at all, electricity, right? So that's then, is that an ESG investment? Well, yes, it certainly fits the, the, the bracket, but it's not driven principally by a moral or ethical imperative. It's just simply very cheap. So if technology and policy shift, and indeed, if the macroeconomic conditions are right, in other words, there's demand for energy because there's growth, then, in a sense, the ESG label becomes almost redundant, and that might be the you know the more positive way in which it's superseded by historical change. Got it. Okay, we will take a break here and be back in a second to talk about the economics of divorce. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? 
Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back. Our next data point is 7,000, as in $7,000, which is the median cost of a divorce in the United States. The average cost of a divorce is somewhere between $15,000 and $20,000. But of course, that's not a one-size-fits-all price tag. More complicated divorces can be significantly more expensive than that. And this is not yet taking into account the division of property and all the other effects. These are just the kind of fees involved in having a divorce. Yeah, this is the end of our series on the economics of love. It's admittedly a somewhat downbeat ending, but uh, (laughs) my impression was that a lot of the other talks had sort of downbeat implications as well. So maybe it's just fitting that we're ending where we are here with divorce. So Adam, in the 1970s, the United States switched from a mutual consent divorce system to a unilateral divorce system. I mean, could you describe the economic implications of that switch and who exactly has it benefited? Um, it's a very complicated and rather sudden and dramatic shift that begins as it, as it always does in the United States, state by state. So legislation shifts to the local level. And on first principles, you'd say that a system which makes divorce easier will benefit those who have higher incomes, bear less of the cost of childcare, and um, therefore have the ability to rebuild their lives most rapidly in the aftermath of of a couple's separation. And so broadly speaking, and this is confirmed in the data, um, divorce is something that benefits the higher earners, and those tend to be men. And amongst women, divorce has tended to benefit higher earning women. Um, and, And rather dramatically in the first instance, so this liberalization and progressive, this is, as it were, the great, the great dilemma at the heart of divorce, you know, law liberalization is that, you know, if it's driven by a search for happiness, and I think that's important to say in light of your intro cam, you know, is divorce a mechanism is obviously bloody and brutal more often than not in the actual moment of separation. A couple isn't going to do this that, you know, if, unless they're rethinking their lives quite fundamentally. The idea, of course, is that divorce enables unhappy couples to separate for people to go in search of love somewhere else and with someone else. And so the idea is, in fact, to increase happiness and overall, uh, even if, you know, at, at short term cost. And the question is whether or not this doesn't have a rather serious economic and social cost, which permanently jeopardizes the position, particularly of women um, over the, the rest of their lives. And the socioeconomic data on this really from the beginning has been profoundly disillusioning in the sense that it's like some of the other reform projects of the 1970s, that it it exposes an ambiguous dark side. It is, of course, desperate 
to stay in an unhappy marriage, but breaking out of an unhappy marriage may have such serious economic and social consequences that it basically throws millions of women and children into poverty as a result. And economic growth is not translated in certain respects into the kind of, you know, the end of child poverty um, that you would that you would anticipate if you ask why the United States has the high levels of child poverty that it does. Part of, and I think it's very difficult to avoid this conclusion, is the instability of the family structure that would previously have transferred at least some income, perhaps under circumstances of violence, perhaps certainly on an inequitable business, but nevertheless would have achieved some transfer. One of the saving graces of this very complex and difficult trade-off is that couples adjust. And because the cohort that is impacted most are those who married and made crucial life choices in their 20s and 30s under one legal regime, only to find themselves in the aftermath of legislative change in another one. But over time, American couples have adjusted such that the tendency from the 1980s onwards for women to stay in the labor market, not on the spectacular scale we've seen in many other countries, but nevertheless, an increase in labor market participation by women, the pushing back of the childbearing age, adjustments in educational choices, all of these you can see of as, if you like, precautionary, preemptive, anticipatory reactions by couples, notably women, to the risks entailed in a regime which enables divorce more freely. Um, It is generally true that women initiate divorce. So the unhappiness up to and including the point of violence and abuse within marriages is so significant that in those circumstances, divorce enables an escape, but the economic consequences are, are really quite severe. And so this anticipatory adjustment is key to understanding the overall impact of legislative change on the socioeconomic balance. Interesting. I mean, could we say that gender also influences the negotiations between spouses once divorce has been initiated? I mean, in what way would or could gender influence those divorce negotiations? I think there's at least three different ways of thinking about this problem, all of which point to the dilemma notably facing women under the circumstances of a failed relationship and the need to consider divorce. I mean, you might start from first principles and start with the divorce situation itself, which is shaped in a quite profound way by mutual uncertainty. If you've ever been through a divorce, you'll know that, especially if it's, a, if it's one that's acrimonious, or just if one of the, or both of the two partners are in the state of mental distress, the, the, the negotiation is characterized by huge uncertainty, great fear about what the other side is going to do, what, great fear about what the other side's lawyers are advising that person to do and so on and so forth. So it's a game theoretic situation. Um, That's the point I'm trying to get to, to put it rather coldly. It's like a prisoner's dilemma, because as in the prisoner's dilemma, if the two parties to a divorce can agree to cooperate, um, it's easy to do it relatively cheaply in 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 as agreeable way as possible to minimize the fallout. The problem is that there is an incentive for one party to not cooperate. Because if you take a hard line against a cooperative partner, you will end up with more information about the other side. You can exploit the contingency of the situation. And as we know from game theory, that predicts very suboptimal outcomes. So that's the starting point. This is a situation of huge contingency in which a non-cooperating player may imagine that they will benefit from not cooperating. And so the likely outcome is that neither side cooperates. 
However, there is good reason to believe, and here we're now, as it were, in the zone of social psychology, the social psychology of gender and of personal dynamics, there's good reason to think that women are in various ways more likely to be the cooperating partner in an inherently dangerous situation in which the cooperating partner becomes vulnerable to exploitation by a non-cooperating partner. Um, so in the prisoner's dilemma, the two prisoners are not the same. One has a different wiring, imagine. And social psychological research, these are cliches, and this is why I'm speaking so cautiously, because it's a, it's a discourse of cliches to an extent. And the cliches matter in part because women may imagine that to be a good girl, to be a good woman implies to be more emotionally empathetic, to be more cooperative, to, 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 to engage in a more pro-social way. And there's quite a lot of behavioral psychological research which demonstrates this to be case, even at the level of discourse. So divorce is, of course, a situation in which gender, in, in the case of, of heterosexual, heterosexual marriage couples, uh, it's that group that has the largest exposure to divorce experience, tend, as it were, to polarize. And um, it produces highly dysfunctional results for women. And then to come to the more obvious point, women's positions in the power dynamic, in terms of employment, in terms of the assets they may have in their own name, tends to be inferior to that of men. And so again, that biases them towards a more cooperative stance, which in the prisoner's dilemma-like situation tends to produce inferior outcomes for the women. So the paradox is that divorce law was supposed to, as it were, free people from you know, often, often violent and dangerous marriage setups. Women tend to invoke divorce more, and yet the outcomes of divorce negotiations tend structurally not to favour women um, over the long run. Structurally speaking, there's very, there's no really no way of arguing with the with the data which show that um, um, divorce law liberalisation has gone hand in hand with the increase in risk and poverty of mothers uh, in the United States. I'm curious if we could take some international perspective here. I mean, what sort of impact does divorce have in the United States compared to the impact in other countries around the world? Is it possible to make that comparison across countries? It's, it's a really, it turns out to be absolutely fascinating because in the end, it forces you to take an ecological approach to thinking about the impact of divorce. By ecological, I mean all of the different components in the ecosystem of marriage and the gender distribution of labor and the gender distribution of childcare responsibilities and property law and so on and so forth, right? All of these, and these are, these are things on which countries differ enormously. And the reason why I'm presenting this in such a somewhat anguished way, is not just my own personal experience of divorce, both as a child and as, a, as an adult, as myself divorcing, um, but also because it seems to me that liberals have a tendency to underplay the drama of what we're doing because social conservatives who are unafraid of dramatizing this, um, you know, draw such draconian and simplistic conclusions from their diagnosis. But I think precisely those who advocate for this kind of change need to face up to the drama of what we've been engaged in. And there is no question that both in on terms of gender identities, in terms of sexuality, but also the legal structuring of marriage, we are engaged in a truly dramatic experiment. And that does vary in its impact across countries. And, and what is revealed by this is that it's crucially the outcome depends on how well-placed women are in the labor market, how rapidly women, and I focus on women because they are the most vulnerable group in this shift because of entrenched and deep structural inequality, how rapidly women can enter the labor market and in what positions if they have been outside the labor market in a classic nuclear family model, how quickly they can find new partners, which turns out to be a crucial variable. So how rapidly do they form a new unit? 
And then thirdly, how supportive is the government machinery, is the welfare apparatus of states in general for people who are in financial stress? And, you know, putting all those things together, it's unsurprising, perhaps, that divorce emerges as particularly dangerous for American women, because it tends to be lower income couples that suffer crisis more and to divorce more. And the American welfare state is profoundly unsupportive of poor people when we take it, you know, on the whole. And the rate of remarriage is relatively low by comparison with some European cases. Switzerland apparently has the highest rate of recoupling, if you like. And so we have diametric opposite outcomes where divorce is extremely dangerous for lower income women with less education in the United States. The high probability of divorce and more catastrophic outcomes when it happens. And Switzerland is right up the other end where, in fact, it's very difficult to show in Switzerland, according to one OECD country, uh, sorry, one OECD study, that there is very much impact on women's socioeconomic prospects from divorce in Switzerland. And that's you know, pretty hard to imagine coming from the American setting. And it's to do with the fact that the welfare state's more supportive, women are in more favoured positions in the Swiss labour market, and they more rapidly move back into, into um, new partner, new, new couples, uh, new couples, new love, new marriage. Um, I, all of this, I have to say, was quite head-turning. I hadn't previously thought of <laughs> Switzerland, which has a notoriously socially conservative attitude towards women. Many Swiss cantons didn't permit women to vote until, <laughs> you know, astonishingly recently. But if you use this metric, that model appears to be better. I should say this is one study. Now I'm saying it out loud. This result just strikes <laughs> me as so counterintuitive. I'm beginning to worry. But it's generally true that European welfare state models are very important here. And that therefore, we need to take this systemic approach to divorce to understand its implications. Finally, I wanted to ask about divorce as a business of its own in the United States. I mean, what share of marital assets tends to be captured by the divorce industry, if we could call it that, the, the lawyers, the other kind of accompanying businesses around divorce? It's a, it's a fascinating question and adds another facet to this, which is, you know, marriage is above all a legal institution. That's, you know, its last residual for those of us who are not religious, um, its last residual meaning. And that means it's one of the moments in your life where you have to deal with lawyers. And in that situation of contingency, I was describing earlier on as a kind of prisoner's dilemma uh, situation, it's one in which you have two prisoners in, you know, separated cells. And not only are the prisoners wired differently from each other and in deep distress, but each one of them has a combative advisor, or perhaps in some cases not combative, but in any case, an independent advisor um, whose job it is to mediate their relationships with the other prisoner, you know, the other party to this complex game that has to be played out. And it is true, and it sounds cynical to say this, but the lawyers are incentivized to make it as dramatic as possible because they get paid first a retainer and then by the hour. And so there is an escalatory dynamic here of, of course, not in general slandering divorce lawyers as a group of people who prey on the distress of, of couples. And that would be that would be grotesque. But there is an inherent element of additional complexity added by the fact that this is a legally contested situation and lawyers line up on both sides. And no doubt many couples will have made the experience that you begin to believe that you have found the sweet spot in a very bitter situation when the two parties to the divorce can agree and both of their lawyers are upset with them. Um, that certainly was, was, my, was my experience. Um, no, no disrespect to, to the lawyer who helped me with mine, for whom I, am, I will be eternally grateful. Um, but the result is a big industry. It's remarkably difficult to actually get precise numbers on this. I found three 
separate quotes for the value generated by the family law and divorce lawyers business in the United States. And the thing they, they have in common is that, is that they're big numbers. Um, the, the estimates I've seen vary between $11 billion and $50 billion a year. Um, so this is a substantial branch of the law. Um, the one thing we know is that it's denominated in billions and it's double-digit billions. I think that's the kind of ballpark we're in. Um, it is more uh, more expensive, more lawyered up than its counterparts in Europe as well. So this is a, a zone of considerable you know, commercial development in the United States, the, the growth of this business. As a share of the assets that change hands, it will be relatively small, it has to be said. Um, but um, nevertheless, a, a big, a big business. Yeah, I also saw recommendations about how divorce could be deregulated and sort of to shrink this business. But um, we do need to end this segment and with it, end the series on the economics of love. If you've missed any of those or all of them, I'd recommend going back to the beginning, starting with dating apps and listening to the various stages. But um, yeah, that will conclude our series on love. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or you can email us podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.